Julie Bindle is going to speak first. So Julie is an investigative journalist, writer and broadcaster. She's been active in the global campaign to end violence towards women and children since 1979 and has written extensively on surrogacy, rape, domestic violence, sexually motivated murder, prostitution and trafficking, child sexual exploitation, stalking, and the rise of religious fundamentalism and its harm to women and girls. So in your spare time, Julie, what, <laughs> what do you do?
that, that this is something that they have a right to is beyond me. So let's just have a look at the reality of what goes on. So one of the investigations that I did for a, a US publication uh, was to go to Gujarat in India. Um, and you know, I know that Sheila will talk a little bit about that, but Gujarat is, was the capital of surrogacy in India, the, the, the country that is, 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 is best known in a way for the, for the abuse of women in this trade. And this was three years ago. I presented myself as a 54-year-old woman married to an Indian man who was worried that her husband would leave her unless she was able to produce a child. Clearly, I was too old to have my own child, so we would use his sperm and we would use a surrogate womb. Now, in these clinics, of which there are hundreds, hundreds, in the capital alone, they call them fertility or IVF clinics. Um, I was led through to a back room where I saw where the women sleep, eat, live, are completely controlled. And I was told that it was no problem that I could have a baby through surrogacy and take that baby home. Um, and that she would keep the woman who would give birth for me in surrogacy house, which is pretty much a lockdown <coughs> situation. Um, now, I was told when I was in the clinic that there was a gay male couple that had arrived in Gujarat who had commissioned five separate babies from five separate clinics. And they just wanted a big family and they wanted them all to be delivered on the same day. Now, you can do that because the woman, whether she's ready or not to give birth, she will have a C-section on demand when they arrive to take their merchandise home. And it is merchandise. Of course it is. And I was told that it was homophobic to speak against this. And really, they did not care about gay rights, they care about money. So we come back to the UK and Tom Daly, you know Tom Daly? Yeah. I think he swims or dives or something. Um, <laughs> he and his partner wanted to have a baby and rather than look at fostering, adoption, or in fact, just helping others bring up their, own, their, their children, they realised that they could, in fact, commission a woman to have this for them. Now, the gushing media attention, as if they had done something so special, was sickening. And on the day that it was announced that they were pregnant, and we saw a picture of the scan, which was from the womb of a surrogate woman, the mother, I was probably on Gin and Netflix at the time, and I tweeted that this was the interface of capitalism and patriarchy and that gay men are abusing women by renting their wounds. And naturally, I was a Nazi, a bigot, and a homophobe. It doesn't matter who you are, what your sexual orientation is, if you speak out against this, gay men doing this, you are a homophobe. It's that straightforward. Now clearly there are anti-gay bigots who don't want any of us to have children, and who would speak out against this, but not because they care about surrogacy. They don't care about those women. So let's move on to the best known gay male couple in the UK and in the US, <coughs> and have a look at their antics, shall we? The Druid Barlows. That they were the first gay male couple that managed to fight a legal battle and win to bring back a baby that had been born through a surrogate mother from the States to the UK. 
and they've since had four more. And they're planning on more. And on one radio program, one of the Juliet Barlows, they both are so thick that if they had any fewer brain cells, you'd have to water them twice a day. But the, the thicker one <laughs> said, said on the radio um, that his, that his uh, sons was very handsome. And the presenter said, yes, he is gorgeous, isn't he? And Juliet Barlow said, well, you get what you pay for. Oh. When I interviewed the thicker one, <laughs> he had no shame. They make a fortune from brokering surrogacy deals in the US. Because whatever the legislation is, this trade exists. It's like the sex trade. They will broker in women's bodies. So they obviously pretend that they're just giving advice to couples that go to them and then they link them to a clinic in California where Jennifer is from. Um, and, uh, and that's it, they get the commission. So I said to, to one of them, so tell me about the birth process of the surrogate mothers. And he said, well, he said one thing's for sure, they're all C-section. And I said, oh, why is that? Thinking it was the usual convenience for the commissioning parents. He said, I don't want my kids coming through a woman's vagina. And this is not unusual. The women, whatever these men, the, the kind of nice, respectable ones like Tom Daly, who probably isn't a misogynist, right the way through to Elton John, who probably is, they all think the same about the women. They are vessels, and that's all they are. Now let's have a look at what happens with surrogacy and other forms of commercial sexual exploitation of women. Because surrogacy does not exist in a vacuum. We would not have it were it not for the fact that our bodies are seen as dispensable and usable by men. So first of all, there are women in brothels, in Hungary and elsewhere, that are prostituted <coughs> and impregnated and their babies are sold. And the couples buying these babies, and I've interviewed two of them, just think these women are surrogates. Because of course the payment goes to the broker, to the pimp. And the women get some poultry sum. So that, of course, is how they double up with prostitution and surrogacy. And the second thing, and this is what I saw in Cambodia, and it's probably one of the most upsetting things I have ever witnessed, ever, was in Phnom Penh, there is a milk factory of women that are, their choice is to either clear up the rubbish. They live in this horrendous area where it, it's, it's, it's just, um, it's like a, a landfill. And they either collect the rubbish and ship through it for a few cents a day. Or, if they are able to, if they're pregnant or they've just given birth, they sell their milk. Their milk is sold. And they sit along a very long table like this and many of them have their babies in their laps. Some of them are still pregnant and they have suctions on each nipple and the milk goes through a clear plastic tube into a huge vat at the bottom. And then it's divided into litre plastic packages and frozen and sent to the US and the UK for gay men who cannot breastfeed, other surrogates, heterosexual couples, and rich American women who don't want to take time off work. 
right? So that's what surrogacy is doing. So some of you will be sitting here thinking, yes, but Cambodia, India, the, you know, this is terrible, but you can't use this as an example of what happens to, for example, the poster girl, the white, smiling, altruistic poster girl, or even the woman who thinks this is an okay way to make money because pregnancy, she enjoys it. She enjoys it, she loves being pregnant, she wants to give a gift to an infertile couple. You literally are looking at Brooke Magnanti here, Belle de Jour. That is who you are looking at. Do not be fooled. Already in the UK, 14,000 pounds can be claimed for on expenses for a woman who gives birth as a surrogate. That, for many working class, hard up, part-time working women is a salary, right? We have men pimping women into surrogacy in the same way as we have boyfriends sending women out onto the street because they want their heroin or a better lifestyle. You can't possibly remove the exploitation from surrogacy. You mustn't look at the atypical women that masks the hundreds of thousands of women who have the worst psychological and health problems as a result of this. And one small anecdote that I want to finish on is back to the clinic in Gujarat. It's a racist, deeply, deeply racist trade. The babies that were photographed with the commissioning parents on the wall of this clinic were all white. The women that had been used for their wombs were all brown. Most were illiterate. They couldn't even sign the contract, let alone read it. So I asked the woman as I was leaving, do you ever get a request for the eggs of Indian women? Or do they always import the eggs from, it's mainly Ukraine, again, desperately poor women? She said, no, no, they're all white. Oh, she said, yes, there was one. A couple, they wanted a baby with black hair. <coughs> it literally is mix and match. It's like eugenics, it's horrific. Please, please do not support this or ever think it's a human right for gay men, for anyone, and don't let them be a smokescreen for this trade in women's bodies. Thank you. Sheila's an academic and researcher who specialises in reproductive health um, and her work in Germany is focused on maternal health in India, selective abortions, new reproductive technologies including surrogacy and prenatal screening um, and she's the author of a book on commercial surrogacy in India. Without further ado, Sheila will explain for herself what she does. Thank you Sheila. Uh, thank you very much uh, Julie. And uh, now I'm coming to India. And 
Uh, India is just an example of how this narcissism is uh, in display, actually. Uh, and how, so I'll start with the markets, the global markets of surrogacy, and how it is going from, um, surrogacy markets are moving according to the global patterns of uh, inequalities, and uh, you know, it's very post-colonial as well. So India, uh, Thailand, Nepal, India, Mexico, and Cambodia, these are the countries that were previously a huge global hubs, and uh, these countries, uh, banned surrogacy somewhat around the same time of uh, same period of time and as soon as these countries banned surrogacy it all moved to these other countries like, which are also in South, South Asia, Africa and also in Dubai. So it's a very clear pattern of how these markets are moving according to the global inequalities and uh, very very post-colonial and Many of the popular source countries where uh, um, the clients were coming from, it's typically US, UK, and Canada. There was a point when in India, when it was a huge uh, market was booming at that time. There was a clinic in India which was uh, catering to four or five clinics in um, uh, Western India, and they were uh, producing, producing. I'm saying. Uh, one British baby every second day. So whether they were NRI Indians, non-resident Indians, whether they were British people, so that was the extent of this market that was booming in India. Very typically, uh, this is like any other, you know, outsourcing. So you, the lesser cost, and we know all kinds of outsourcing. There are, um, you know, uh, garment industries, IT, and this baby-making market became another outsourcing industry for. India, so lesser, typically lesser rights for surrogate mothers, uh, less cost, a uh, lot of poverty, inadequate governance that supports all kinds of activities that can be done within India. Um, in September 2015, India banned commercial surrogacy and the first, um, first day I opened the newspaper was all this uh, BBC and many other uh, channels that were saying that oh, there's such a big opportunity has been lost and I couldn't find one article that said that it was good. Of course, uh, the reasonings behind this was there were deaths of surrogate mothers, there were custody battles, we all know how many children were stranded in India, uh, there were German kids, there were Australian kids, abandonment of children, there were abandonment of disabled kids, uh, in my case study, in the previous case study, I found that uh, there was a girl child born without a hand and that child was left uh, a week later under a bridge you know, in Ahmedabad. Exploitation of women, uh, there's a lot of, at least a lot of information on that. Trafficking of women and uh, teenage girls was also going on when this industry was legal and it was in full bloom. Uh, so I had two rounds of study. I did one study in 2009-10 in India. And uh, the book that I have written is based on that. And recently, in 2019, I, I went back to India. Uh, thank, thanks for the uh, UNDFR they, in France. They funded uh, a small uh, follow-up study of, I interviewed in-depth interviews of 45 surrogate mothers just to uh, look at uh, physical, that's a physical health, emotional, and uh, monetary impacts of surrogacy on their, on their lives. Um, so I'll go straight into the human rights because one of the uh, points of my uh, presentation is on that. 
So women are detained in these homes for almost a year. So right from the embryo transfer time, they are supposed to be living in these houses. And these women sleeping are typically uh, just after uh, embryo transfer. So for almost uh, three months, they have to be on the bed and they, uh, they have to sleep with their leg upwards, crossed leg. They are not allowed to laugh uh, loudly. They're not allowed to laugh loudly. They're not allowed to urinate forcefully. And these are some of the rules that, are, that is imposed on them. And they're not allowed to move. Very clearly, they're not allowed to move. And if they do all that, they carry the guilt of miscarriage. So if there's, a, if there's miscarriage anyway, they're not paid much. It's very, very uh, less amount that they pay, get paid. Uh, then the, what do they do after that? So there's a work for pay. So they're not working anything. So what they have to do is eat, eat as much food as possible and their weight has to keep gaining. So every three months they're paid a lump sum amount. And this amount is based on their weight gain. And the final, uh, I'll tell you later also, the final payment is also based on the weight of the baby. Baby's born. And the other kind of uh, rules are they're not allowed to meet their family members. They have to, the kind of music they listen to is uh, they have to listen to religious music so that it's good for the baby. Uh, finally, the breastfeeding and nanny work they have to do, uh, as Julie also mentioned, uh, it's also based completely on what the intended parents want. If they want to nanny there, they want the uh, surrogate mother to nanny the baby, they have to do it if they want to breastfeed. But this breastfeeding, they can do only using the pump. They are not allowed to come near the baby. So there's a glass door. They can see the child, but they're not allowed to touch the baby. So you provide the milk, but don't touch because you are like uh, not hygienic enough. So these women are typically used like uh, you know, their bodies are used like just like baby making machines. And uh, these are not only in India. So India is just not one case study. That these, this was happening in so many countries and we still do not know what is happening, where the industries have shifted. You know, where these markets have shifted, we do not know what's happening in Africa and South America. Uh, apart from that, there was, uh, there's no life and medical insurance, there's no psychological support, there's no, there's, they are not given a copy of the contract. They cannot read the contract. Uh, they just signed it, and sometimes the husband signs. It's all kinds of things are happening. Um, so in case of any, they have to sign that in case of any kind of uh, you know uh, adversities, which includes death, near death situation, removal of uh, uterus, or anything of that sort, they have to take full responsibility of the situation. Now this is a small. There were two or three uh, surrogate homes in uh, in Anand, and this is one of the surrogate homes. And now this clinic has grown into such a big clinic that it's it's almost like a big um, castle. And now what has happened is in this clinic she has dumped all the surrogate mothers underground. So earlier at least they had some breathing space. Right now they don't even have a. Uh, they cannot even come out even to a balcony. There's no fresh air for them. They are all underneath. And there are three security guys standing there. So earlier I could even walk into there. I, now I can't walk into this clinic. Um, trafficking. This was also going on when it was in full boom, the industry. Uh, typically in uh, UP and Bihar, which are the poorer areas of India, there used to be a chain, a network of uh, girls, young girls who are trafficked into sex trade uh, from UP and Bihar into bigger cities. And uh, surrogacy started, uh, this industry started using the same network 
of um, this trade. So there were young girls uh, who were traded, enslaved, raped, and at very young ages, at age of 10 and so on. And they, this is one of the quotes is that they treated me like a money minting machine. They never, uh, my will never mattered to them. All they wanted was me to deliver babies for them. Um, the agency part, there's some people, some who say that, uh, even academics who say that it is my body, I do what I want to do, but we forget that there is a intersection of discrimination and there's a historic level of intersection of discrimination. These are poor, people, they are women, and um, they are they have lesser education, they have lesser employment opportunities, and they have this burden of having to bring their family out of poverty. And if you ask them, they are they dread that their family should never go into any kind of poverty situation ever again, that they would have to do something like this. And they also tell that I would I, I'm doing it because I would never want my daughter to ever do something like this. So if we call this agency, then we can go ahead and do so. Emotional impact. I just have a few case studies. Uh, Sonali, it's not her real name, but I went to her um, house and she showed me the baby. Her children were around. They were, two of them were there and the, uh, watching us. Uh, she wanted money. Her family wanted money to build a house. And um, as soon as I asked her, like, do you remember the baby? She started sobbing, and I had to completely stop the interview. I, I had to give her enough time to actually recuperate. And um, eventually, I asked her, like, do you need psychological support? She said, um, no, I'm not a mental. Uh, I'm not going completely crazy. So for her, even the concept of psychological <coughs> counseling was did not exist. She did not even know what it was. But it was very clearly that she was in a very distressed situation. Uh, Gracie, again, it's not her real name. I went to her house. She was one of my first first uh, surrogate mothers that I interviewed in the 45 women that I interviewed. Uh, she had uh, two girls and one boy that survived in her uterus after the embryo transfer. Uh, the doctor actually did a sex selective abortion and chose to um, abort one of the girl child. And uh, she, her belief system was, didn't allow that and she was extremely depressed right from that point of time and she was in the surrogate home and after that another incident happened is that she uh, her very close friend sleeping in the next bed died during surrogacy and this death was not reported in any media so um, she became extremely depressed and eventually whatever money she received from the uh, surrogacy also she was not able to use it for a right purpose so she's she herself started telling that you know I've sinned and hence I couldn't use this money. So huge psychological problem. This particular photo, uh, I asked this lady that do you um, have a photo of the baby? She started rampaging her whole cupboard and finally she brought out this newspaper. It's not very clear at all because her child was uh, really um, you know crying around and I would I was unable to take the photo. But she said the only time she was allowed to hold the baby for a few seconds, maybe 30 seconds or, or so, was for this photography session for the newspaper. For um, it, it, her, her intended couple, uh, intended parents were from abroad. And this photo was also not shared with her. It was some friend who said, oh, you're on the newspaper. 
and uh, she remembers that's the only time she was allowed to hold the baby. So what we get to see in the media is completely different from what is the reality of the situation here. Um, there are huge physical impacts that I already told you, deaths, near deaths, so many uterus, uterus removals I heard in that 45 interviews, in-depth interviews that I con conducted in India, I found so many of these cases and all not reported. Uh, one of the uh, striking um, physical impacts that I found was in, on this lady. She, her first surrogacy was for a Canadian couple. The second surrogacy, same thing. She had uh, a girl and a boy, and um, the girl was uh, aborted. The five embryos were transferred into her uh, uterus, and three progressed to successful uh, pregnancies. Uh, one girl was aborted. And during this process, I mean, the process was so risky that she uh, started having um, some kind of, uh, you know, uh, emergency situations. She started bleeding. And it's very, we all know as uh, anybody who knows medical uh, um, science will know that if you do in uterus selective abortions, there's a very high risk of other uteruses also dying in the process. So they, she was put on intensive care unit. She um, somehow to save the other two babies and uh, for about three months and then eventually she miscarried. I mean, she had an abortion and she was not uh, paid anything. That she was paid 500 euros for that, you know. And um, we have to understand that these women are already having substandard health. These are not women who are uh, highly healthy, they are poor economically poor women and hence that they already women who are their health is not that great so this makes them really much more vulnerable to all these kind of uh, medical technologies manjula i went to her house she was in tears and um, after her first surrogacy she went back to the clinic she she became pregnant with her own baby and she wanted to uh, use the same facility for her own pregnancy and uh, the clinic slammed a huge bill on her. They said, no, no, it's not surrogacy, it's your baby, so you have to pay the full bill. And she couldn't afford it. And eventually she went to a government hospital and then she had a fistula. She had a urinary uh, fistula. And uh, she suffered like anything and the clinic was not helping her much at all. They, she still owed about a lakh, she owes a lakh of rupees, 100,000 rupees for the clinic. Mm. The uh, economic impact, there's a lot of say that, oh, these women, they build castles, they become rich with this money that uh, surrogacy is providing them. There's this case where I was quite shocked. She's living in a shed just next to the railway line. After the surrogacy, she got some um, 600,000 rupees from a um, couple in US. They were unable to manage the money. They got 500, 600,000 rupees. They were not able to manage the money. Husband got used to taking loans. And then it, she want, they wanted her to go back into surrogacy twice, thrice, so that she can uh, repay those loans. So it's a kind of a cycle. And there are many of these women who go back into abject poverty. I, in fact, I wrote to the intended parents. Uh, I got an email. I got the email address from her, and I wrote to them. And they were so. Um, they were not even able to understand how come she went into poverty. Oh, we paid her for what she what she did, you know. So beyond that, that's not our our problem. Um, this was another case. Uh, I may not go deeper into it, but she was 
she did her surrogacy twice again very poor people have to do at least twice surrogacy to come out of to some extent of the poverty so uh, because she her first surrogacy she wanted she became very attached to the child because the intended parents wanted to her to breastfeed and nanny care and so on and became she became very attached to the child because she had done that crime of actually becoming attached to the child the second baby they didn't even show her the face so it was a camera the whole her whole uh, cesarean section was videoed without her consent and after that she was you know um, begging can, can you show me the uh, face of the girl child they didn't show her the child eventually it is a photographer who came back to her um, bed and showed her on camera because he felt bad for her and he he showed her the child baby on camera uh trafficking and objectification of children which i already said uh, disabled children are left on uh, you know um, on the streets they are left in orphanages there are numerous premature babies we do not know how many of them die uh, payment is based on the weight sex uh, of the child appearance of the child if the child is dark in color uh, there were so many cases where the payment was got reduced and right now what india is doing has done is, is following the british system and uh, allowing altruistic surrogacy and there's more talk about as soon as we talk about any uh, program or any discussion or debate the first question that comes is that oh it's not allowed for uh, gay couples it's not allowed for homosexuals it's not allowed for uh, so it is allowed only for heterosexual couples and uh, who are married uh, up to 5 years and so on um, but we do not understand that that's not the question here at all the question here is the, uh, the larger picture of it should not be allowed for anybody the kind of exploitation that is going on here because in altruistic surrogacy there have been already cases of deaths where uh, the younger sister in law becomes a surrogate mother for an older sister in law and she died in the process so there are cases but it's not um, you know um, come out in media and i don't think the debate is going in the right direction in india anyway so my in, in my book i have argued that the whole concept of reproductive justice is actually to reduce inequalities and what are we doing here you know, we are actually using these inequalities to get babies and uh, this is a level of narcissism that um, is in display in, in the global surrogacy market right now thank you very much of the Center for Bioethics and Culture Network um, that has a long and impressive uh, CV, but I'm going to tell you uh, about the films that she has made. Um, so, you've, um, sorry, I'm just going through, I'll start. She's called upon to speak to lawmakers and members of the scientific community and has addressed members of the European Parliament in Brussels on issues of egg trafficking. She has three times addressed the United Nations during the Commission on the Status of Women on Egg and Womb Trafficking. And she made her writing and directing debut producing the documentary film Exploitation. 
which won the best documentary at the California Independent Film Festival. Um, she's also a director, executive producer, and co-writer of Anonymous Father's Day, a documentary film exploring the stories of women and men who were created by anonymous sperm donation. And in 2014, she completed what is now a trilogy of films on the ethics of third-party reproduction with breeders, a subclass of women, question mark, which focuses on surrogacy. And in July 2015, she released a documentary short, Maggie's Story, which follows one woman's egg donation journey. And Lyle's newest feature film is Hashtag Big Fertility, was released in the autumn of 2018. Thank you, Jen. Um, it's great to be with you. As you've heard, I am from California. And um, I'm here to say, don't be like the Americans <laughs> when it comes to surrogacy. Uh, the current debate over surrogacy has two main positions. One side argues that we should allow the practice with regulation. Um, there's currently um, that debate taking place here in the United Kingdom. And I'm sure the women that are at the table, Nordic Model Now and Object UK would appreciate talking with you about what's going on in the United Kingdom. And then the other side, um, the position that's shared by me and... You can't hear me? Oh, sorry. Sorry. It's hard for me to hold this and look at my notes. Um, uh, the position that myself and my colleagues up here on the panel share is that you cannot um, regulate away the harms and abuses and exploitation, and so therefore it must be um, abolished. The crux of the disagreement is over what should be done in order to minimize the harms to those women who serve as surrogates and the children who are produced from these contract arrangements. I think you've heard in already Julie and Sheila's remarks uh, about the atrocities to, to women and the children that they give birth to. Um, and of course in the United States we think that we can protect all the stakeholders in these contracts, commercial arrange arrangements um, through regulation laws and um, I would say that's, uh, that's naive and that's being polite. Uh, but for me, perhaps the most effective uh, tool that I use when I argue in the United States is in reading the contracts that American women sign. And I think the contracts are quite um, telling in that they, they demonstrate how the surrogate mothers, the birth mothers, have no rights. They have no choice and they have no freedoms. We hear about how they choose to do this, they want to do this, they're happy to do this. And I have read quite a few of these contracts, uh, mostly drawn up in my state of California, but in contracts around other states as well. Um, my state, California, is considered a surrogacy-friendly state, uh, which is why Elton John came to California and the Drew Barlow's had come to California. What does a surrogate-friendly state mean? It means that commercial contracts are legal. Uh, there's no limit to payment, so Elton John and and, and co, the wealthy can set, the, set whatever amount they want to pay. There's no limit or restrictions in how many embryos a surrogate is asked to carry. So we've had quite a few controversial cases in California where surrogate mothers were pregnant with triplets. Um, and they, of course, ensure the legal rights to the intended parents, the purchasers, to get that baby. And in fact, in California, the surrogate waives her maternal rights to the child before she's even pregnant. So that's severed at the signing of the contract. 
I believe, of course, that all surrogacy should be prohibited and not regulated. What do these typical contracts include? They have all the, you know, the basic legalese of any kind of commercial contract. But um, I think it's interesting to note that overwhelmingly the use of the word mother, if it's used at all, and in the case of a gay male couple, the, the word mother is never in the contract. If it is in a contract, it's when there's an intended mother or a purchasing mother. So she is the mother in the contract. Um, there's typically language declaring that this agreement is not for the purchase of the, or sale of the child. Um, what is the surrogate being paid to do? Hand over a child, not to keep the child. Um, so I think that's, of course, disingenuous um, language. Um, there's a lot of medical and psychological testing and screening, often heavily tilted to the surrogate mother. So she has to be screened um, and evaluated <coughs> that she's going to do a good job and obey her contract and not get any kind of um, ideas. Uh, the payment structure is also outlined um, in these contracts with what's reasonable and reimbursed expenses, clothing allowance, gas and mileage reimbursement, um, to and from doctor's appointments, childcare if they need to have childcare um, for their own children in the home so they can get to appointments, lost wages if the surrogate mother has to stop working because of pregnancy related complications. Um, and there's also language establishing, like I said, maternity and paternity once that child is born. Most surrogates in America don't even see the children. Um, Sheila alluded to that. We are delivered by C-section and the children are whisked away. Um, and immediately on the birth certificate of the child is the intended parents, the purchasers. Um, to me, the most troubling aspect of these contracts, though, is not using the nuts and bolts of a legal commercial contract, but all the additions, the whims and the wishes, if you will, of the intended parents. So um, they can explicitly control what the surrogate mother um, eats. I've seen contracts with the surrogate during the pregnancy is told she has to maintain a vegan diet when she's not back to vegan normally in her life. Um, she has to ex, um, limit her intake of fast food. So the diet is heavily controlled. She's told if she can exercise, what kind of exercise she can conduct, where she can live, where she can travel, what kind of activities she can do. I've seen language requiring the surrogate um, can't dye her hair can't get piercing, you know, can't get her ears pierced without permission. She must get permission. One contract stipulated that the surrogate and her husband agreed that they would not form or attempt to form a bond with the child. Um, you heard a little bit in Sheila's uh, illustration of the one woman who, who did form an attachment. And how can you write into a contract that you will not bond with, with the child? Um, as if you can just wish, wish that away. Um, the confidentiality of personal health care information I find incredibly troubling. In an earlier life, I worked for 20 years as a nurse in hospital nursing. Um, in, in the United States, you know, personal medical history is pretty well protected. Um, and so oftentimes, the surrogate mother waives her right to patient confidentiality. So intended parents, which oftentimes the surrogate has no relationship with, sometimes hasn't even met these people, have total access to her medical records not just the part of her medical record that's necessarily <coughs> attached to the pregnancy, but anything. Did she in her past have any kind of um, psychological history? Did, has she seen a counselor? Um, has she had any kind of illnesses that she didn't disclose? All of this is used as a wheel um, uh, uh, to, to bludgeon her with in case she gets, um, gets you know, ideas that she doesn't want to comply with the, with the contract. Um, 
uh, contracts are also regulate um, who the surrogate can have sex with. Uh, a California surrogate's uh, contract read that she agrees that she will not partake in any sexual or intimate relations with any person except her partner, and only if her partner agrees to submit himself to medical testing. Uh, uh, contracts always contain an abortion and a termination clause. This got us into trouble with the two surrogates in California that were pregnant with the triplets. Uh, the language in, uh, in one contract says that she specifically agrees to terminate prior to 18 weeks at the election and discretion of the intended parents, with the exception of termination based on gender selection, which will not be permitted in this one particular contract. The rights of the intended parents to request termination abortion is absolute and does not even require an ex explanation. So they could just go to the surrogate and say, just because. Um, you must terminate or reduce down the pregnancy. Uh, another contract that read that the uh, intended parents reserve the ultimate and sole legal right to selectively reduce before the completion of 20 weeks of gestation. The intended parents have the sole right to determine the number of fetuses to selectively reduce, taking into consideration the recommendation of the surrogate's treating physician. The right of the intended parents to request a selective reduction is absolute and does not require any explanation or justification to the surrogate. Um, as a nurse, this next clause, which was again in another contract signed in California, really made my blood boil because they actually um, anticipated that the surrogate mother might have an accident or an injury that required her to be on life support. Um, so they wrote this uh, clause into her contract for insurance and it said that if she was in her second or third trimester of pregnancy, and in the event that medical support, life support was uh, required, uh, the surrogate and her husband would agree that the intended parents could make the decision if or when to terminate life support. And I, I know, and, and just because I know this particular case, this again was a surrogate who had never even met the intended parents. She had met them through, through somebody who put an appeal on Facebook who was looking to help find a surrogate for some friends of theirs that were looking to conceive. So she basically signed away her, her medical decision making to total strangers. And this is legal. This is a legal contract in the state of California. I'll give you a moment to pick your jaws up off the ground. Um, these, all, these contracts always include language re regarding how to deal with the surrogate when she doesn't comply. Um, and if she decides not to terminate the pregnancy or not to reduce down the pregnancy. This part I'm gonna read next was in bold in all capital letters. To the extent that the surrogate chooses to exercise her right to abort or not to abort in a manner inconsistent with the instructions of the intended parents, it is understood that such action may be determined to constitute a breach of this agreement. So she's in breach of her agreement if she chooses not to um, uh, terminate or reduce uh, the pregnancy, or if she uh, chooses to terminate or reduce and the intended parents don't want her to do that. So either way, she's in breach of the contract. She understands and agrees that she will surrender any fees received. It's all attached to the money, right? Um, the, the, my new film, Big Fertility, the hashtag is, it's all about the money. So, and any future fees may be, uh, she may be liable for the damages resulting from this breach of the agreement. She understands and agrees that reimbursed costs 
may include but not be limited to the following list of items, the IVF fees, the agency fees, the attorney fees, the medications, the travel expenses. They're gonna go back after her for all those monies already spent that she will be in breach of, and so she will have to be, uh, she'll have to pay that back. And this particular contract did say that if in the case of a child being born with a disability and her not being willing to terminate the pregnancy, that she's responsible for the care of that child until that child reaches the age of 18. This is in the legal contract signed in the state of California. Um, I'm often asked why these contracts are legal. Are legal? <laughs> uh, I wish I knew. Um, uh, and I'm also asked why do surrogate women enter into these kinds of contracts? Because they need the money. And they're willing to roll the dice. They're expecting that things will go well um, as we often all do, you know, why do I overeat or overdrink? You know, because I think I'll be fine. It won't happen to me. And these women are willing to take the chance or the gamble uh, because they need the money. So um, I join you all in getting better um, educated and informed and joining us all to stop this um, grotesque human rights uh, violation of women. Thank you. speaker is uh, Renate Klein. She's a Swiss-Australian biologist and social scientist. Again, a very uh, impressive CV. I'm going to go to her books. Um, she's the co-author and co-editor of 15 books on radical feminist theory and critiques of biotechnological procedures. Her most recent books are Surrogacy, a Human Rights Violation by Spinifex Press and Broken Bonds, Surrogate Mothers Speak Out, um, co-edited with Jennifer and M Melinda Tankard-Reist. She is also an original signer of www.stopsurrogacynow.com. Thank you. Hello, everybody. I'm trying to stand here because I can't see anybody behind that microphone. And anyway, I'm too small to sit, so I'm going to try and stand here. Thank you to all the previous speakers. I mean, I think you have said how horrible surrogacy is, so I don't even have to say anything more. We could go to the discussion. But <clears throat> you might have this question. You might say, all right, you know, we agree that international surrogacy is really horrible uh, when it's for money, it's really bad. But what about so-called altruistic surrogacy? like which, we have, which you have in your country here and which we have in Australia. And just to say, Germany, France, um, Spain, Italy, Austria um, have no surrogacy whatsoever because sometimes people think surrogacy is everywhere. It is not. It's actually very few countries, only a few states in North America that allow it. Canada also has only um, um, altruistic surrogacy. So the question is, couldn't a labor of love without payment where a kind woman gives the gift of life to an infertile friend or um, a relative, couldn't that be an ethical way to alleviate the pain of involuntary childlessness? Or to put it differently, couldn't altruistic surrogacy be free of exploitation? Now, unfortunately, after years and years and years studying such 
so-called altruistic deeds. And then indeed, publishing the book that has already been mentioned, Broken Bones, with Jennifer and Melinda, which contains the stories of 15 um, surrogate, not so-called surrogate mothers, which is a misnomer. I mean, she's not surrogate, she's a mother, or we call her sometimes birth mother. Um, I have come to the conclusion, no, altruistic surrogacy is no better. In fact, I actually think it can cause more harm and is worse. Um, in fact, you know, I work closely with two of the, well, <laughs> with one, a woman whose story is in this book called Odette, because the family court judge um, only allowed her to speak about her case by using pseudonyms for everybody. And the other person is in the book called Rob. He is the partner of a so-called surrogate. She was not, is not even allowed to speak about her, her case by the, by the judge. So uh, we work very closely with these two um, families in doing this book. And what's happening, what's happened to them um, is really, um, it's almost worse in a way than with commercial um, surrogacy. Because if you do commercial surrogacy, mostly as Jennifer said, because you need the money, you don't really expect to be best friends with this unknown couple that take a baby away and you'll never see her or him again. But if you do it for a friend or, your, or, or a relative because they have become infertile, or if you do it for your gay friends who are becoming more heterosexualized by the day, <laughs> first the marriage, now the baby, it's almost becoming like, okay, you got married, so now you're gonna have children, right? Um, so, and this kind woman, who says, yeah, yeah, I love being pregnant and I have my own children, I'll be happy to do it for you. Um, so when something goes wrong, and it very often does, then the harm is actually, and the hurt is actually worse, because these were our close friends. And the so-called surrogate mother is deeply hurt by what actually these people then do to her. So in Odette's case, for instance, she had a baby for her medically infertile cousin, and after it went really badly wrong, I'll tell you about a few things, um, the, the big extended family began to quarrel, took sides, and more than three and a half years later, they're not speaking to one another. So this is an effect of surrogacy, so-called altruistic surrogacy that we never hear about. And Odette's son, for whom she sold the baby for her cousin, might be a great playmate, never met Mitchell, that's the baby, also not his real name, in spite of Odette being named the mother on the birth certificate. Since she handed her new newborn son over in the hospital more than three years ago, she has never seen him again and has not even a photo of him. Despite her multiple pleas to the people who now call her son, their son. And her heartfelt pleas are ignored. This, this is how deep the hatred her is by her cousin. That reason for this hatred is that in so many other cases around the globe, women who are infertile or have become medically infertile have a deep sense of worthlessness. They are not proper women. 
And then, as a consequence, a deep-seated sense of anger, of resentment, and indeed envy towards this woman who stepped in to do what she thinks she should have done. It should have been me who is pregnant, not her. This sentiment leads to terrible actions. In Odette's case, her cousin rang her repeatedly during the pregnancy and abused her so badly that Odette actually considered having an abortion because she was really getting fed up. She didn't do it, but she was considering it. She was also considering giving the baby up for adoption. Um, and she even had the adoption agency come to the hospital before she gave birth, but she didn't do that either. Um, when the abuse got so badly that they, they kept you know, shouting at one another at the telephone, the um, cousin stopped paying any medical and even legal expenses for Odette. And that meant that um, her lawyer, who happens to be the most famous surrogacy lawyer in Australia, a gay man who pushes surrogacy like crazy, um, he decided he wasn't going to be, get paid. I think he was owed $12,000. So he stopped representing her. So if she hadn't actually found this wonderful pro bono lawyer who took her case on, she would have been entirely unrepresented in the family court. As it was, she still lost big time because despite the fact that she's named the mother of the birth certificate, she has not seen her child since the day she gave birth to him. She has not even had a photo of him, nothing. And she is deep, still deeply um, depressed. She was diagnosed with PTCS. She deeply regrets handing over her birth son to her cousin in the hospital. And she was actually considering fighting for him in court, but she's a single mother on government benefit, and she wouldn't have had a hell in hope to win because her cousin um, and her husband are very wealthy. So it wouldn't have worked. This is just one case, but I really, really urge you to read the stories um, in Broken Bones. There are four stories by um, people who you know, did so-called altruistic surrogacy. And since this is now the, the, the current inquiry in the UK, <coughs> which is about altruistic surrogacy, you can get a lot of information from these stories. And they're truly heartbreaking. And like in commercial surrogacy, what we heard before, the so-called surrogate mother is always economically and financially disadvantaged, often also educationally, and with absolutely no pro prospects of keeping her child. And many of them have attempted to do so. So why, you might say, if things are that dire, why don't we hear more about it? Well, one thing is, it's been said before, the media. The media is not interested in bad stories. They want happy stories of happy mothers, beautiful babies, smiling parents, you know, the, 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 and if they're gay, that's even better. Um, the second case, the second reason is that, um, as in Odette's and Rob's case, the family court prohibits them from speaking about their experiences. I presume that's the same case here also. In uh, might be a different court, but it's the same in the UK. 
Another reason is that often, after having taken the baby away, the birth mother has truly been broken by the experience. And speaking out about it is about the last thing she emotionally can or even wants to do. And, the third, and another reason in Australia, with one that really irritates me endlessly, is that it's that one particular, well, there's three groups actually, surrogacy Australia, families through surrogacy, cis, which are now called growing family. They, they have all the same man <coughs> at their helm. His name is Sam Everingham, and you should learn that name because Sam also comes to the UK and does conferences. He thinks of himself as very wonderful. He's gay. So in Australia, we have two men plus the two gay men plus the um, IVF industry who's pushing surrogacy. Um, so he makes it very clear that if you want to enter the inner sanctum of his organizations, you have to pay money. And actually, um, it became public through a report on the ABC TV um, that in the last five years, <coughs> this organization, which is a pro which is a um, pro, not, not for profit organization, has made two million dollars profit. I mean, I wish we had two million dollars. You could do an awful lot of things with them. Um, so it's really all hush hush. Uh, when you pay money, you get access to the inner sanctum where they're lovely surrogates, they're wonderful egg donors, everybody's smiling, and you, are, you can start your so called surrogacy journey. And you also get referrals to surrogacy, for instance, you, in Ukraine or with any of the other countries, despite the fact <coughs> that in Australia, in the states of New South Wales, Queensland, and the territory of the ACT, um, and it's recommended also in Western Australia, it is a criminal act punishable by jail, jail terms or a fine of over 100,000 to go overseas for surrogacy. But sadly, it's never been enforced. So despite the fact, that's why, why I agree with Julie when she said it doesn't almost matter what, what, what the laws are. They're going to do it anyway. It's like the prostitution. Um, so for this and many other reasons, um, obviously, Jennifer didn't actually say that. Jennifer started in 2015 a very wonderful organization called Stop Surrogacy Now. We're all members of this, and um, there's another wonderful organization in France called ICAPS, and um, we also started a new one in Australia called APSA, Abolish Surrogacy <coughs> Australia. We put, we put a bracket around Australia because, as I said, one of the gay men's um, organization is called the Surrogacy Australia, so, so we have to make sure we have a bracket around Australia, so not to be sued. But we would love to abolish Surrogacy Australia. Um, <laughs> we want to raise awareness in the general public about the myth that altruistic surrogacy um, is about happy babies, happy IPs, that stands for intended parents, and happy altruistic surrogates and egg donors. The reality we find is broken hearts and broken bones, and babies deprived of their mothers at birth. In Australia, we have um, we talk very seriously about the stolen generation, 
Those were the babies removed from Aboriginal people in the 50s and 60s, last century, um, to be given to white people, so they had good homes. Or then babies of unmarried, mostly white women um, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, up to the 80s, who were also removed and given to better families. Um, so we know all about that there have been repeated apologies from the government to the so-called stolen generations and to the women whose babies were taken away. But now we're doing it all again. And we're all very clear about the fact that in Australia at least, in 20 years' time, there will have to be new apologies to children created from via surrogacy. And if you think about it, I mean, adoption has many problems with it as well, because often the child is removed from their <coughs> cultural background and everything. But in a way, in surrogacy, the IVF embryo is created fully well knowing that once it has been transferred to the womb of a woman who then grows it into a baby through her own blood and bones in nine months and is taken away from her, it, it's an absolutely shamefully premeditated act. Worse really then, as I said, um, adoption. It's a human rights violation of both the birth mother, the egg donor, if there was one, and there always has to be one for gay couples, and the child who never agreed to be a takeaway baby. So, what do we want to achieve in Stop Surrogacy Now, and in APSA, and in ICANN, and all the other groups, I mean, with thousands around the world. And I should also say that in my book, A Human Rights Violation, I talk about the history of especially radical feminist um, opposition to reproductive technologies and surrogacy. We started that in the 1980s. And yesterday, um, Chalna Hammer was here. That many of you will know her. She was a founder of FINRAGE, Feminist International Network of Resistance to Reproductive and Genetic Engineering, which still exists. And still, in Australia, we're also working against that. So what we want to do, we want to change the discourse. We want to change people's perception so surrogacy is recognized for what it is, a deeply unethical enterprise. You cannot jeopardize two women's health and lives to have your own narcissistic, as previous speaker said, dream fulfilled by commissioning your own biological baby. Children are not commodities that can be bought whether for money or for love. We would like to change the public discourse so that if somebody crows about how wonderful surrogacy is, how wonderful the baby is, other people turn to them and, say, and ask them, how can they justify exploiting two women and knowingly deprive a child of her or his mother? Yes, we know that involuntary childlessness is extremely painful. But you cannot relieve your pain with a new baby that is built on the tears, tears and the heartbreak of another woman. I do believe perceptions can be changed. Look at that 200 years ago, 
Um, slavery was abolished. I know it's not perfect, but it's more or less abolished. Um, smoking has been greatly reduced, maybe not so much in England, but in Australia, when you smoke, you almost become a social pariah. The Nordic model is spreading their wings around the globe, although the sex work people are opposing it. But actually, perceptions can be changed, and that's what we hope, that minds and hearts can actually be changed. So all I can say to you, please, I mean, the government has concluded their, um, commission, their, their, their um, submissions to their very awful inquiry into surrogacy here in Australia. They are getting very close to wanting to turn it into um, commercial surrogacy. Please, if you at all can do something in the discourse in the public that I suppose will follow, absolutely say no. There's only one answer to surrogacy, and that is abolishing, stop it. And I really want to particularly also um, mention that Gary Powell is in the audience. He is one of a group of one <laughs> brave gay men in Australia, in, in the UK. I wish we had you actually in Australia. Um, and there is another bra brave gay man in Spain, and you have both spoken out against surrogacy. Gary is also a member of Stop Surrogacy Now and has published together with Julie. And we need more gay men to come out and say, we say no to surrogacy. <laughs>